invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We'll be looking today at the second mark of fruitful hearing. Mark chapter 4, verses 24 to 25. The second mark of fruitful hearing. The best news that you will ever hear, the best news that you will ever receive, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the proclamation that the King has come. It is the proclamation that the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, the promised Son of David, the promised King who would come and bring peace and goodness to the land and to his people is the proclamation that that one has come. And with him coming comes his kingdom. With Christ comes his kingdom. And this kingdom is unlike any other kingdom that the earth has ever known. It is unlike any other union, any other nation, any other republic that anyone has ever been a part of. Why? Because the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, reflects the character and nature of its king, who is God. The kingdom of God reflects the character and nature of God. The kingdom of God is glorious. The kingdom of God is majestic. It is everlasting. It is full of splendor. It is full of goodness. It is full of righteousness. It is a kingdom marked by holiness. And one thing that we see when we read through the Bible, is, especially the Old Testament, it is very clear that God, being holy, being righteous, it is clear that he punishes sin. God repeatedly brings the consequences of the law upon his sin, sinful people. We see in the pages of Scripture that his people, his people who are supposed to be called by his name, his people that are supposed to reflect his character, are prone not to be like him, but they are prone to rebellion. They are prone to idolatry. They are prone to lusts and coveting and lying and murdering and a number of other sins. Those kind of people, Scripture tells us, cannot hope to dwell in the midst and in the presence of a holy and righteous God. So sinners are posed with a very serious problem, wouldn't you say? To drive this home, Paul says, he emphatically says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, he says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers, or anybody else, or sinners for that matter, will inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news for sinners indeed. But then there's good news. Verse 11 continues, such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That is an incredible, incredible 
truth. Don't let that escape you. That God washes, he cleanses, he sanctifies, he sets apart, he justifies, he makes right sinners in the name of Jesus. That is wonderful, wonderful news for the sinner. That is an incredible gift of God. And remarking on this, John Chrysostom, a 4th century preacher, says, What is incredible about this gift of God? Namely, that those who were enemies and sinners, justified neither by law or works, should immediately through faith alone be advanced to the highest favor. And that a person who has misspent all his former life in vain and wicked actions should soon afterwards be saved by his faith alone. He's immediately saved. He is immediately forgiven. So we see that the gospel that Jesus has been proclaiming isn't this 12-step program. There aren't stages that you need to progress through. There aren't levels that you need to rise up through. It is the instantaneous imputation of divine grace and mercy and goodness and love towards those who receive it with faith. When a soul hears the call of Jesus to follow him and responds in faith, that person is immediately elevated to the highest position of privilege. And that is entirely God's doing. It's not ours doing. Ephesians 2, 6 says, You have been raised with Christ to the heavenly places. You are spiritually seated with the king of the universe. Think about that. You are spiritually seated with the king of the universe around his throne. Philippians 3.20 says we're citizens of heaven. Titus 3.7 says we are heirs of eternal life. John 1.12 says we are children of God. What a joy to those who hear the gospel. What incredible, comforting, joyous news to those who hear the gospel. But the sad news is, is that not everybody has ears that can hear. Many who initially followed Jesus, many who for a time claim his name and proclaim his gospel ultimately fall away and in so doing they forfeit the kingdom. And this is why Mark has recounted a selection of Jesus' parables to teach his disciples about the kingdom of God and its inhabitants. We saw in his first parable, the parable of the soils, that it explained why some people ultimately reject the gospel and fall away and why some receive it and remain. And the key quality that delineates those two groups, the dividing line is hearing that produces fruit. It is fruitful hearing. And so... The, the, the following parables, these concluding parables in this scene while Jesus is teaching the crowds is then coloring in this fruitful hearing. It, it, it's, it, it's answering what does fruitful hearing do? What does it look like? What does it produce in the life of kingdom people? Now last week we saw the first mark. We tried to get through 
several of them. We only got through one. Today we're going to get through the second, and next week hopefully we'll get through numbers three and four. But the first mark we saw last week was that fruitful hearing witnesses obediently. The first mark was was obedient witnessing. Jesus is the light of the world that God has put forth. The lamp is the gospel, and though for a time it was being hidden from unbelieving Jews, it, it was hidden so that it would later be shown upon those who would accept it and, and receive it and believe it, namely the Gentiles, and that's, that's you and I. Those entrusted with the light serve the light's purpose, and they give it to others so that they might benefit from it. That was the first mark, obedient witnessing. Today, in verses 24 to 25, we will consider the second mark of fruitful hearing, and that is expectant working. We'll consider that fruitful hearing works expectantly. Now let's look at Mark chapter 4, 24 and 25. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given you besides. For whoever has... To him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. As we saw last time, Jesus is speaking to a a rather large, tumultuous tumultuous crowd. He may still be in the boat in uh, the USS pulpit that's just off the bank of the shore. And there is a massive crowd of people still on the shore. And even though some are leaving, there's still a large group there. And, and there, this group is following him for a myriad of reasons, as we considered in the parable of the soil. People are following Jesus for different reasons. He's, a, he's an amazing teacher. He's a wonder worker. He, he does miracles. He really gives the, the, the religious elite and the establishment what for. He, 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 he shocked the crowd. He would, he would bring the wow. It was entertaining. It was hip to follow Jesus. It was trendy. But we also saw that there was a much smaller group who would comprise his his true disciples. And the division between them, the dividing line, is how they heard him. What set them apart, the difference between them, was how the two groups heard Jesus. And we saw that Jesus' use of parables actually... uh, demonstrated that dividing line. Those who truly heard him got the truth that the parables pointed to. And so Jesus begins this parable, our text day. He begins in the same way that he concluded the last text, and that is with a call to hear. He, he is giving a call to truly listen, to truly hear him. And verse 23 repeats what he says in verse 9, if anyone has ears to hear Let him hear. In other words, he's saying some of you are not not following along. Some of you are not picking up what I'm laying down. Some of you are not tracking with me. But some of you are. And those of you who are, keep doing it. Those who hear me, keep hearing me. Keep listening. Don't leave. Keep tracking. 
And so he says in verse 24, be careful what you listen to. It's another way to, to exhort and to urge careful, fruitful listening. Be careful what you listen to. Literally, uh, in the Greek, it's see what you hear. To see what you hear. Uh, and, and the idea of, of seeing not just a casual glance, but to see and to perceive, to grasp with your eyes. And this reminds me of my time in math class in high school. I had the rare privilege of having a teacher in math who, who he made math fun, which is why I talk about math sometimes in my preaching. He made math fun. and He was very gifted as a teacher. And in, until that aha moment came in his teaching, I'm looking up at the board and I see, I see numbers, I see lines, I see shapes. And, 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 and to make it even worse, then they bring in letters. And it seemed like we were always searching for X. Don't ask why. But all these things, it's up on the board, and I, w- I would look at it as a cow stares at an oncoming train. And it just with the glazed eyes, and I, I wouldn't get it. But then eventually something clicked, and I got it. And I had it in such a way, I, I got the math, I could see the math in such a way that I can, in my mind, I could rotate it and I could, I could change things out and I could see the equation and I, I got it, I saw it, I grasped it. That is what Jesus is calling for here. See the divine truth in his teaching. Perceive and grasp the truth in his teaching. Now, he returns to this farming metaphor. He, 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 he started with the parable of the sower. He briefly went to, the, to a parable about a lamp. And then he, he was, he's returning, returning to using farming images. And he, he refers to the measure. He says that the, the, the measure with which you sow will be measured to you. Now, this measure, what, what is it? The measure, the measure is uh, roughly... Uh, uh, it's roughly an ephah, and for those of you who are wondering what an ephah is, it's about 10 omers, so your concerns can rest. Uh, but uh, we don't know exactly what either fig- how much either one was, and so scholars have suggested that uh, an ephah or a measure is, is about two and a half to five-ish um, uh, dry gallon, or gallons of dry seed. So imagine this big rucksack about yay, uh, about anywhere from yay bigs, basically as big of a sack of grain that a man could carry and, and, and cast seed with. And so he speaks about this measure. And, and as with all the parables, there's this obvious earthly truth that is pointing, that is guiding, that is leading to this divine truth. And what is that obvious truth? The more you sow, the more you grow. Profound, isn't it? I mean, think about this. If, if I took this little uh, zip, Ziploc bag, and I, I'm not talking about the quart Ziploc bag. I'm talking about those little um, half-sandwich-sized Ziploc bags that you have to cram the sandwich in. And d- don't put the lettuce and the tomato and the pickle and everything on the sandwich. You need to keep that sandwich thin because it needs to fit in that bag. You take that little baggie, you fill it with seed, if I, and you go out and you, you cast it, you sow it. How much can you expect to bring home at the end of the harvest? 
A lot? Enough? No. Now, but then imagine you take this big, big burlap sack, this massive sack that weighs, you know, 50 pounds when it's full of grain, full of seed, and you go and you sow that. And then you come back and you fill it up again and you go and sow that again. You make multiple trips. The more you sow, the more you grow. The more you invest into your field, the more you get a return later. The more you put in, the more you get back. Basic, obvious, earthly principle. And this proverb, the way Jesus uses it, applies and it reaches over to the kingdom of God. Now, why is Jesus giving us this lesson here and now? Is he teaching us some kind of works righteousness? Is he teaching that if you do enough, if you sow enough for the kingdom, then, then you might become worthy of it? No. Jesus is not saying that you get the kingdom of God because of how much you do for the kingdom. It, that's like the Starbucks card. That you, the gold card that you, you have to buy enough in order to renew it annually for the next year. The kingdom of God's not like that. The kingdom of God is not yours if you do enough. Jesus is giving an incentive here. He is giving a motivation for dedication and commitment and hard work and sacrifice because the days are coming. There will be plenty of opportunities and occasions in the life of his disciples where they are not going to see the payoff for their hard work. At the least, they're not going to see the payoff today. They're not going to see the payoff tomorrow. Rather, like the farmer They are going to be called to give and to give and to give and to work and to sacrifice and to labor and to toil, to be uncomfortable. They're going to be called to give, and it will be weeks, months, years before they see the return for their efforts. So Jesus is giving them this motivation to encourage them that the reward will be worth the toil. Jesus knows the value of well-placed motivation. He's telling his disciples, who will later give their lives for the gospel, that the payoff and return that they'll get later is worth the hard work now. Now, there are at least three ways, there are at least three spheres in which this principle comes to fruition in the life of the believer. Three ways in which we can see how this comes to life in the life of the believer. And the first is evangelism. The first sphere where we see this principle is, is in evangelism. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, simply put, no evangelizing, no hearing the gospel. People don't hear the gospel, they don't call on Christ. If they don't call on Christ, what don't, what don't they get? They don't get forgiveness, they don't get salvation, they don't get heaven. They don't get reconciliation, they don't get adoption. Which is why Hosea 6.4 says, My people perish for lack of knowledge. No gospel goes out, people don't get saved. 
for sinners to be saved, the gospel must go out. It must be heard. And the more, what this principle shows us is the more evangelizing is done, the more souls are returned. The more the more the gospel is sown, the more souls are harvested. And though not everyone will respond favorably, though not everyone will respond with ears to hear, though not everyone will have faith, some will. Some will. Some of that seed will inevitably, as it's cast, as it's sown, as it's preached, as it's proclaimed, as it's cast out, some of it will land on good soil. Some of it will land on good soil. And that fundamental belief is what, underli- is what undergirded, is what fueled and sparked the, the, the modern missionary movement of the 18th and 19th century. The, I think one of the earliest ones, William Carey, left, uh, he left uh, uh, England to go to India, and, and he, he kind of set the trend, and, and his words would, would go on to inspire later missionaries, and he said, expect great things, attempt great things. I think that really encapsulates the, the, the principle. Expect, good thing, expect great things are going to happen and do your part to try to have those things come to pass. And if God makes it work, fantastic. If he doesn't, try again. And so his words would inspire Adoniram Judson to go to Burma. His words would inspire J. Hudson Taylor to go to China. His words would inspire Jim and Elizabeth Elliot to, to go to South, South Africa. And many others whose stories we don't know. But many have heeded the call to preach the gospel, to sow the seed of the gospel, and to evangelize. And though sacrifices were made, and though inconveniences were suffered, in fact, many of their stories are are incredible to read. The things that they went through, as, as not only were they deprived of the conveniences and pleasures that you and I have every day, but... Their health took tolls. They lost loved ones. They lost family members. They were derided. They were mocked and ridiculed for what what thought was a fool's errand. And some of them saw the fruit early on. Some of them it took decades. But God honored their work. God honored the preaching of his gospel And they saw a return of souls which wouldn't have happened if they had stayed home, which wouldn't have happened if they had kept their mouths shut. So if you want to see people saved, preach the gospel. Share the gospel. If you have a loved one that is a burden on your soul that they don't know Christ, how will they unless someone shares them and exhorts them to come to Christ and shares the gospel and pleads with them and prays for them. Because if, if, if no one does anything, how then might they be saved? If you want to see people saved, share the gospel. And don't be discouraged when people don't respond favorably. Share it with someone else. Or share it with them again. Just keep sharing. Just keep doing it. More seed sown, more crops grown. So that's evangelism, first sphere of this principle of the measure. The second sphere is 
in regards to practical needs and money. Practical needs and money. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and in verse, uh, the church has promised him financial support, him and his, his missionary band. They've promised him missionary support. In verse 5, he informs them that he's coming to visit them, and he reminds them that they had pledged or that they had given a, a promise to support him, and so he reminds them of this ahead of time, so that they don't, so he doesn't show up at their door and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, um, I owe you. So in verse 5, he reminds them about that. And then in verse 6, perhaps alluding to our gospel text today, he says these words to, to motivate them, to, to make sure that they have the right motivation and incentive in supporting him. He says, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart this is one of the reasons why we don't we don't teach the tithe each one must do as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver and then verse 8 and god is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed and then verse 10 now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness do you see the emphatic way paul is saying god will take care of you should you decide to give The ungenerous, those who are ungenerous, those who are unwilling to give cheerfully, those who need to be constantly reminded, those who need to be prompted, those who need to be pressured to give, those who only give under compulsion, they need external motivation, they never quite have enough. Remember a, a reporter once asked uh, Rockefeller, how much more do you need? And his response was, just a little more. I think he said that on two or three occasions. One of the most wealthiest men who's ever lived. He just needs a little more. Those who are stingy will find they never quite have enough. There is always a little more pinch you can put on that penny. But the generous, those who give freely, those who give graciously those who give cheerfully who don't need prompting those people find that they have what they need when they need it god takes care of his own people does he not and so the application is that we give expectantly we we give in our offerings we give what we have purposed in our heart to give. And when we give, we give willingly. We give cheerfully. We give graciously. And we give to the church so that preachers may continue to do their work. And we give to others and to, to our neighbors and to our, to our friends, to those who are in need, so that burdens may be lifted, so that needs may be met. And all the while expecting God to honor and to bless it and to use it and to be pleased with it and to give us what we need at the same time. 
So we see the principle of the measure in evangelism. We see it when it comes to practical needs and, and money. And then we see it also applied with respect to eternal rewards. Eternal rewards. In Galatians 6, Paul is addressing some in the Galatian churches who have neglected to, to help one another. Some who have neglected to bear one another's burdens. And verse 6 actually kind of implies or suggests that it's the needs of the pastor or missionaries, someone who teaches that, that were being neglected. Verse 6 says, The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So most likely either the pastor or some missionaries. And he says in verse 7, For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And then he, he explains his reasoning behind that in verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap Corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, the stingy, those who are stingy with their resources, those who, who are clingy, those who don't want to give of their time, of their energies, of their monies, of their resources, so that even Christian needs are neglected and that burdens are unmet. Those are the people sowing to their own flesh. They are looking out for number one. They are looking out after self. It's their money. They get to spend it how they want. Their wants, their needs are the ones that are met. And as has happened, things accumulate, things accumulate and the schedule is so tight that fellowship with other believers is never a possibility schedule is filled with work and with activities and hobbies and they need more just a little more and so they sow into themselves and what does verse 8 say they will reap satisfaction destruction or, or corruption what this means is what is is the things they at least in the temporal realm in the here and now, this means that what they have amassed for themselves, they're eventually going to part with. Soar up for yourselves treasure in heaven where wrath and must can't destroy. The things that, that the stingy have stored up for themselves, their wealth, their money, their, their, all the stuff, the property, the cars, the big house, the, the trucks, the boats, the bikes, the toys, the stocks, the investments, the clothes, the shoes, the bod. You're going to have to part with that sooner or later. You don't take that stuff with you into the next life. But So, so that's sowing to the flesh, but sow to the spirit. In, invest in the things of God. Invest in those who are indwelt by the spirit of God, taking care and meeting the needs and helping the burdens of other believers. You reap eternal life. You receive a return that is lasting. Now, Jesus expands on this. and He, he teaches on this in the climax of Matthew's gospel, which is chapters, really, uh, things really start heating up in chapter 24, but in, or 21. But in 24 and 25, we see this principle taught repeatedly, some in parables, some in prophecy. 
And he says time and again, repeatedly, that those who invest in the things of God, that those are the ones who are going to be rewarded for their efforts. Those are the ones who are going to be rewarded. Those are the ones who are going to have a lasting return for their contributions, for their good works. Chapter 20, Matthew 24 and 45 then, Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? So this is like a, a, a slave, a servant being delegated to take care of the rest of the servants while the master is gone. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. In other words, be faithful with what God has entrusted you with now. Be rewarded when he returns. And then in chapter 25, 14 to 30, we, we are given the parable of the talents. This is a, a, a familiar parable, parable of the talents. We see three slaves, three servants who are each entrusted with their master's money called the talent and and they are instructed while he's away he goes on a trip and while he's away they're to do business they're to trade and they're to invest and go into the banks and 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 invest in the stocks and the loans and go into the markets and, and and trade and make him a profit and those who are faithful that's the that's the mark not that not necessarily that they were skilled but the mark is that they were faithful. Those who were faithful were rewarded. And they're both told the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And don't, don't look at that as, oh, great, I now have more responsibility. It, it, it was a joy. It was a joy to be promoted by your master and, and to get to do the better work. It, it's reward. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. In other words, you are rewarded. Now go enjoy your reward. What happens to the lazy slave? Which, again, it's not, it's not just that he didn't happen to trade well. The context shows he's lazy and that he, he has a very dismal view of his master. He, uh, the parable is, is saying he hates his master. The lazy slave... He loses the talent. He loses what he had and more so. And then Jesus, continuing in the parable, he, he gives the master's principle for, uh, he gives the principle behind the master's reasoning, verse 29. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But to the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Where have we heard that before? Mark chapter 4. In other words, it matters how you conduct business for the king. It matters what you do with the things and the skills and the talents and the energies and the things and the materials and the blessings and the gifts that God has entrusted you with. It matters what you do with them. It matters because all these things, your good works, your money, your, your, your services, your gifts, the way God has made you, they bless other people. God, God, and we've seen this before in First Peter, 
God has given a, a myriad of gifts, a manifold of gifts throughout the church, each one of us being equipped specifically to bless the body as a whole and to bless one another in ways that other people can't do. God has built me in such a way to minister to you and to bless you in, in ways that some of you aren't built to do. Some of you are built in ways to bless one another in ways that I can't. So it matters how you employ the things that God has entrusted you with because it blesses others, but it also blesses God. Did you catch that? Does that sound a little shocking? That your good works bless God? That you and I can actually bless God Almighty? The one who, who... you know, he has all the cattle of a thousand hills. All the birds of the field are his. He doesn't drink the, 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 the flesh of bulls or the blood of goats. He doesn't need any of those things. And if he were hungry, he wouldn't tell us. But yet, our works bless God. Jesus, well, we, we, we saw in, the, in those two slave parables that the slaves who blessed their master by investing for his profit were rewarded. But Jesus even drives this home, and he makes this clear in the last parable. In, in, it's not a parable, rather. It's a, it's a prophecy in Matthew 25 in the scene of the final judgment. He says that the Son of Man will come in his glory, and he will sit on his glorious throne to judge, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. You're aware of this, of this scene? He's going to separate the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers, and he uses the same reasoning for both. To the righteous, to the sheep, the king will invite them into the kingdom because, as he says in Matthew 25, verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and... You clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, what's amazing is this is going to completely flabbergast and surprise the sheep. This is going to surprise the righteous. And what do they say in response? What, what, would I, what would you say if God said that you clothed him, that you fed him, that you visited him in prison? What would you say? What? When? When did I do that? When? When were? When? When? When were you hungry? When? And when did? We, when did we do any of those things? Verse forty. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, even the least of them, you did it to me. And the same standard is applied to the unrighteous, which. He calls the accursed ones. Verse 45, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now where the believer will be amazed at the abundance of reward and at the, just the, the, the overflowing threshold of joy that is laid up for him by the king, the unbeliever, the, the sinner, the one who is outside of Christ, the one who falls away, the false disciple, and the one who is fruitless, he loses absolutely everything. This is devastating, folks. 
This is devastating. He loses absolutely everything. Go back to Mark 24, or Mark chapter 4, verse 25. Even what he has shall be taken away from him. Luke, Luke's uh, parallel gospel, uh, the, the, the parallel text shows us what, what this means. He says, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Even what he thinks he has. And you have to see the warning of Jesus to, to heed the warning not to be this false disciple. Don't be the fruitless soil. Don't be any one of the fruitless soils. Don't be one of those who falls away. And don't be one of those who is listening to the speaker of divine truth and doesn't grasp it. Don't be that one. Don't be one who has a hard heart towards the light. Don't be one who has a shallow commitment, who only follows Christ under pretense. We know people like this. Don't be one who has a divided heart to think that you can have two masters, that you can obey Christ and obey self or the pleasures of life or the deceitfulness of riches or of anything that competes with Christ in the heart. In other words, idolatry. Don't be an idolater. False converts and false disciples, they may claim to have eternal life. They may, have, they may claim to have spiritual life, but their lives, if you give it enough time, especially when the sun comes out and shines on them a little bit, their lives show that they don't have it. They may profess to know God, but what does their work demonstrate? That they don't know him. Their works, through their works, they deny him. And Jesus himself warned that in the day of judgment that comes, they will have no foundation. Their house is not built upon the rock of his word. And because they're not on a sure foundation, their house comes crashing down. And the emptiness of their faith, Jesus says, will be exposed. Great will be the ruin of that man's house. And the Lord will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice wickedness. You who practice lawlessness. That's what the unbeliever, that's what the false convert has to expect. So there's a warning in Jesus' words. Don't be that one. But the disciples with fruitful hearing, they don't expect that from God. Those who have fruitful hearing expect good things from God. So they work expectantly. They work expectantly. They share the gospel expectantly, trusting and knowing and expecting that God will honor the preaching of his word. And though they may not see the fruit today, though they may not see a return tomorrow, God will return some souls through them. He says his word does not return void without accomplishing that for which he sent it. God will honor the preaching of his gospel. So share it. And they also 
they, they share not only the gospel, but they share of themselves. They share of their materials. They share of their energies and resources. They share expectantly, trusting that God will bless them and take care of them for it. Amen? So, first mark, obedient witnessing. Second mark, expectant working. And we'll consider the, the third and fourth marks next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this promise of reward. We thank you for the joy that is being laid up for us even now in eternal life. Help us, Lord, to invest and to commit ourselves to the good work, to the work that really matters. Lord, we confess that sometimes because of the flesh we fail to love you as we ought. We fail to love one another as we ought. Forgive us for that. Lord, may we walk in repentance and may we, when we see the opportunity to share the gospel with someone who needs to be saved, lead us to do so. Give us the boldness and the clarity in our hearts to do that. The most loving thing we could do for another sinner. And then also, Lord, as we have the opportunity to share our resources, to share our of ourselves with one another, as we see others with burdens, give us, give us a heart to do just that. Thank you for the way that you have gifted us. Thank you for the way that you have crafted, like a tapestry, you've crafted each one of us specifically and uniquely. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for this church and ask that you would continue to bless it and through it to bless one another and to bless this community. Amen.